0: This is Macro Voices with hedge fund manager, Eric Townsend, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna. Macro Voices episode 256
1: was recorded on July 28th, 2021. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode is brought to you by Abex Technologies, pioneering the design of smarter markets that better meet the needs of both market participants and society as a whole. And by Abra Plata Resource Corporation, a premier emerging silver and gold exploration company, ticker ABRA on the TSX Venture Exchange and ABBRF in the United States. It was one year ago today that I began aggressively shorting crude oil futures and buying puts on crude oil futures after it had become clear that a global pandemic was likely. Two days later, on January 30th, 2020, we dropped everything to rearrange our production schedule to bring you an interview with Dr. Chris Martinson, laying out asymptomatic transmission, are not the measure of transmissibility of a pandemic virus, and the reasons why Dr. Martinson predicted that early efforts to contain the spread of the virus using airport thermometer checks would be ineffective. We were then ridiculed and harassed for several weeks by listeners accusing us of being conspiracy theorists and irresponsible fear mongers. Meanwhile, those of our listeners who were not overcome by normalcy bias and their own fears and insecurities made a killing trading the clearest and most egregious mispricing of market risk in our lifetimes, which persisted for well over a month after it was crystal clear to anyone actually paying attention that a global pandemic was imminent. One year later, the world is a changed place. But what should we make of a stock market rallying to new all-time highs as the pandemic worsens by many measures, and where do we stand with regard to the economic outlook generally? Russell Napier joins me as this week's feature interview guest to discuss these questions and many more. Then be sure to stay tuned for our post-game segment when we'll talk about the crazy price action in markets, including the ridiculous price movement in GameStop and the conspiracy to corner the silver market that the Reddit crowd seems to have undertaken.
2: And I'm Patrick Ceresna. Eric, that S&P 500 yesterday had a 100-plus point down day. The selling seemed to, uh, to just come in as it was a wave of fear in the post-FED FOMC period. And yet the market very quickly uh, turns around and, and does, undoes much of the selling as we're recording here. What's your take on this price action on the S&P? Well, at least we're finally seeing some
1: significant volatility, and sometimes that kind of volatility precedes a significant turn in the market. As you said last week, Patrick, there are lots of reasons to really wonder if this bull market is kind of long in the tooth at this point, considering... All of the sentiment indicators from excessive margin leverage to everything else telling us that this market is just overdone. The thing is, I really think that the dynamics for a crack-up boom are in place, and I can easily see the market melting up, not down from here. On the other hand, I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised if we had a big crash tomorrow. Personally, I'm glad to be a crude oil trader and not to have a lot of exposure to the equity market.
2: All right, Eric, let's move on to the U.S. dollar. We saw the dollar index working its way toward the 91 handle, but giving uh, a part of that back here, uh, is this a turning point for the dollar or do you think it's just going to re-resume its existing downtrend?
1: You know, I'm surprised by the number of people who have so much conviction about the dollar. Suddenly, when I, I have very little conviction at this point, uh, I feel like the you know the dollar index is a relative measure. It's a question of uh, U.S. central bank policy versus other central banks' policy, and terms of a race to the bottom the clear trade is that all fiat currencies are going to lose purchasing power gold is the the way to play that as far as the relative dollar versus euro versus the the rest of the basket I I really don't know what's likely to happen so I don't have a strong opinion but based on the technicals we're seeing a, a nice firm bounce here off of that 89 support a break below 89 and a daily close below it would certainly suggest there's possibility of a lot more downside but but you know, that's just on a, a technical analysis basis. From a fundamental side, I think it's a big question mark. We don't know what the ECB's policy is. We've got a pretty good idea of where the Fed is headed, but even that's uncertain. We've got Janet Yellen coming back in, uh, in a new role as Treasury instead of the Fed. Um, we've got to see what Christine Lagarde does at ECB. It, it, it's a big question mark in my mind. I really don't have any view.
2: Well, let's move on to crude oil because really uh, – Two weeks of uh, sideways price action, all of that upside momentum has uh, stalled out. And the big question, uh, is this where we're going to have a short-term swing high or is this just uh, uh, winding up for a continuation pattern higher? What's your intuition?
1: You know, I don't really have a strong intuition here other than, as I said several weeks ago, I thought what was going to happen is this move that's just been up, up, up since the 1st of November. I thought it had logically about a $52 to $55 top. Sure enough, what's what we've seen is it's been topping out. So far, it seems to me like I think probably a lot of people are thinking the same thing that I'm thinking, which is... It's really time for it to roll over and and to expect at least a downside correction here. But so many people are very confident that by Labor Day, we're going to have $60 plus oil. So as soon as it starts to take a dive, you know, they're buying the dip very quickly. I wouldn't be surprised if we did see some kind of external news cause a price break to the downside that it could accelerate as we start to shake out some weak hands in this market. But frankly, when we saw today in inventory, what should have been a pretty strong upside impetus, crude oil drawing down 9.9 million barrels, almost 10 million barrels. That's a huge drawdown, normally a very bullish signal. Cushing, Oklahoma drawing down 2.3 million barrels. It was offset a little bit by a build in gasoline of two and a half million barrels, but compared to nine Point nine down that two and a half offset still leaves us with a net drawdown on petroleum inventories. Distillates drew down another eight hundred fifteen thousand. U.S. production was down only by a hundred thousand barrels to ten point nine million barrels, but still reducing U.S. production, drawdowns on inventory, these are all things that should be really big bullish signals. And of course, the price went shooting up on that inventory report that lasted for all of a couple of hours and it was right back down again. So we really haven't seen the kind of follow through. And just this morning before the open, we saw another test of the 200 week moving average at 53 spot 58. That's been the governing resistance in the market. And sure enough, that was very firmly rejected, and we're back down below the short term moving averages. So I think we're kind of stuck in this sideways consolidation. Nobody's really selling it, but nobody really wants to take it higher either. And it reminds me of what we saw last summer, where the market was really up. I was expecting it to roll over over and get some kind of correction. And instead, we just traded sideways for weeks and weeks and weeks until it was time to finally move higher again. I think we might be in the beginning of another long sideways consolidation pattern. The big number to watch is a daily close above 53 spot 58 on the front month WTI contract. That's the 200 week moving average, which has been containing the market so far.
2: All right, well, let's move on to gold because back at the start of January, we had that big break on the downside of gold and really looked like uh, some sort of sell cycle could have engaged. But instead, you know, we tapped into the 200 day moving average and gold has been flatlining since and really not willing to commit to a move. What's your intuition about which way gold's going to break here?
1: You know, it's really hard to say. What I have been thinking is that the reason that gold has been held back and not rallying as strong as I would expect it to be, given all the fundamental news that we're hearing about, you know, $2 trillion of stimulus and so forth, I would have expected that to help gold. Gold is definitely being held back, at least in part, by a temporary increase in real yields. I don't think that's going to last very long. I thought this was probably about Bitcoin. And I thought when the Bitcoin rally ended, gold would really take off to the upside. Well, I don't know if the Bitcoin rally has ended. It's not super hard down, but it's it's not continuing its uptrend either. So maybe we just need to wait that out. But it seems to me like uh, gold is definitely not catching a bid so far. And although the Bitcoin rally has not turned into a Bitcoin crash, it seems to have at least stopped its meteoric rise. And that didn't do gold any good. Which which surprised me a little bit. So I still am, you know, couldn't possibly be more long-term bullish. But as you say, we're actually holding here just under the uh, 200-day moving average. We broke below it. We, we've gone up and tested just barely above it a couple of times, but we're back below it now. And you know, the longer we stay below the 200-day moving average, the more risk there is of a significant move to the downside.
2: Well, let's finally touch on the 10-year Treasury yield because after a breakout uh, north of 115 on the yield, we've been seeing the last two weeks uh, just a consolidation as interest rates tested the, very close to the uh, 1% level. Do you think that there's more upside on the yield from here? I don't think so,
1: Patrick. I, I, certainly, there's always a trading range, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we fluctuate a bit. But as far as substantially higher from here, I, I just don't see it because I think as much as there will be a huge Treasury issuance that's going to hit the market, I think the Fed will be there to scoop it all up. And uh, you know, we don't have clear announcements as to exactly how that's going to go down yet. But the idea that this $2 trillion of stimulus is going to result in so much deficit spending that the treasury market is flooded with liquidity and there's not enough buyers. I don't think the Fed's going to let that happen.
2: Well, this week's feature interview guest is market historian Russell Napier. Now, Eric, why did we invite Russell back on the show this week? Patrick, Russell is probably one of my top three all-time
1: favorite podcast interview guests. He's just a brilliant macro analyst and has a fantastic perspective on the market. Now, since the last time we spoke to Russell, he has come on board with many of the other experts that have called for a return to secular inflation. So now that Russell is on the inflation bandwagon, I'm really looking forward to getting his views and understanding how he sees this whole thing
2: going down. Eric's interview with Russell is coming up as Macro Voices continues right after this message from our sponsor.
1: This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by Abex Technologies, which also sponsors my new Smarter Markets podcast, which airs every Saturday morning and explores how the markets themselves could be redesigned to better serve market participants and society as a whole. My interview with commodity trading legend Mark Fisher is available now at SmarterMarketsPod.com. My guest on Smarter Markets this coming Saturday morning will be Kirsten Stewart, a former senior executive for Twitter who now heads up media and entertainment for the World Economic Forum. We'll be discussing how social media's role has grown to the point of literally influencing the outcome of elections and whether and how it should be governed to prevent abuse. But you won't find Smarter Markets on your Macro Voices feed. You have to separately subscribe to Smarter Markets and your podcast app to receive this free new podcast.
0: And now with this week's special guest, here's hedge fund manager, Eric Townsend. Joining me now is
1: Russell Napier, investment strategist and author of the book, Anatomy of the Bear. Russell, it's great to get you back on the program. This is kind of a historic week in my mind because it was exactly one year ago this week that we dropped everything and rescheduled our production schedule in order to bring our listeners an interview with Dr. Chris Martinson predicting that a global pandemic was imminent, which uh, at first we were ridiculed and uh, harassed for. But needless to say, a year later, the world is a completely different place. In many respects, unfortunately, the pandemic is actually getting worse in terms of deaths and, and case counts and so forth, despite the fact that the, the the light at the end of the tunnel is there with the, the vaccines on the horizon. But, Russell, we're in the middle of a hundred-year bad thing, and stocks have rallied to new all-time highs considerably above where they were at their previous all-time highs before the pandemic started. How is that even possible? <laughs>
3: It's a good question, and of course, it might be just a good idea to contrast it with the last time we were in this situation, because I happen in my book to have written about 1920, which is one of the great lows for the stock market, and we know that was in the shadow of that last terrible pandemic. Of course, the crucial difference this time is that America operated under a gold standard then, and the central bank was constrained on what it could do. In fact, even fiscally, there would be some form of constraint on what a government could do. Uh, Outside of wartime, no constraints this time. So the fundamental data is that the total amount of dollars in the world is up 25% year-on-year. Total amount of yen in the world is up 9.5% year-on-year. Total amount of euros in the world up 13.5% year-on-year. And those other currencies like the UK, Australia and Canada are growing about 12% year-on-year. So that's really a doubling and for some countries a tripling in the supply of the total money. Uh, As you and I are both aware, it's not that easy to spend money these days, particularly on services. So the goods economy is not doing too badly. So that money gets diverted. uh, And a lot of that money has been diverted into the stock market. Remember, we've spent 10 years trying to create money and failing abysmally. Central bankers entirely failed in their their, uh, choices they took to try and create money. But now we've succeeded We succeeded through a thing called the Bank Credit Guarantee Scheme. It's working beautifully well, so suddenly we've got this massive surge in the total supply of money. Circulation is low, our velocity is low because of the uh, constraints we all face in this uh, pandemic. So the money is there. It's in the hands of people who didn't have it before. Small companies are where these loans have gone to. Small companies are paying their employees, and the employees and the small companies are investing it in the stock market, but crucially in many other things. And that would include Bitcoin. But Pokemon cards are doing very well. Baseball cards are doing well, very well. Uh, premiums and gold coins are going up. They're basically investing it in just about anything. Uh, and it's become the, the new form of uh, spectator sport or participation sport.
1: Now, let me ask you to clarify something there, because it seems to me that in the first big round of quantitative easing and so forth, a lot of people thought it would be inflationary, but it wasn't. And, you know, we were creating bank reserves, not really putting that money into the real economy. A lot of the money found its way into financial markets. And so we saw asset price inflation as opposed to consumer price inflation. It seems to me that the political narrative is changing or has changed rather dramatically, and the... it's likely that a lot of the focus is going to be sending newly minted money into the real economy as opposed to just into more bank reserves. Could that mean that because we're sending the money someplace else, it's not going to continue to support the stock market? Or does that effect of spending money into the real economy still support the stock market just as much as the old kind of QE did?
3: Now, it's a good point. We have to divide that into two because we're still getting quantitative easing, but we're also getting this new flow of money, the flow of money I've just mentioned, which is through the banking system. And that's the bit is absolutely crucial to understand. That has nothing to do with quantitative easing. It isn't quantitative easing. It isn't fiscal policy either. It is the government running monetary policy. So let us skip forward six months when hopefully the vaccine is rolling out and we're all Uh, getting back to work. A lot of the money which has gone through the banking system that rests in small companies or perhaps in the hands of employees, I would expect to see quite a lot of that money being diverted from the stock market and heading towards real economic activity, consumption in the services economy in particular. Quantitative easing, of course, will continue, and that form of money, as you so eloquently Uh, explained, it does tend to stick in the asset markets. On a net-net basis, what does that mean for the stock market? We're looking out maybe a little bit further than six months. I would say it means a very high level of inflation as that money is moved. We then have to ask ourselves a question we haven't asked for a long time, which is what does that mean for long-term interest rates? Uh, And if there's something that is going to cap the stock market more than the flow that we're necessarily talking about here, which is the consumer taking money out of the stock market to spend. The question is, does that consumer spending generate the inflation that sends long-term interest rates higher and the stock market lower? So I think that is the mechanism through which taking this money, which is kind of sitting on personal and small company balance sheets and moving it away from, let's call it, speculation in the stock market to real economic activity, that might be the mechanism through which it's more potent in bringing down the equity market at a time when quantitative easing no doubt will continue as a a positive for the stock market. A key question, and we will come on to this, is just how high those long-term interest rates will be allowed to rise and what are the impacts of stopping them from rising. But initially, I think that's the sort of disturbance to the stock market comes more through inflation and growth than it necessarily comes from the, the man in the street finally closing his Robin Hood account.
1: Let's go ahead and take a deeper dive on that question of bond yields and how far they can rise, because it seems to me that they can't go too far before the U.S. government literally bankrupts itself and is unable to service its debt.
3: How far can it go? Okay, I'll give you a very over-precise answer. 220 basis points on the five-year. Let me explain where that magical number comes from. Uh, We can look, not at those governments, now I'm looking at the private sectors. I'm much more concerned about the private sector because obviously their interest rates are also related to the state and uh, of course the private sector doesn't get to print its own money and create and generate its own cash flow. We have things called debt service ratios for all the private sectors of about 22 countries. Uh, we can look through the current level of debt service ratios, which are, let's call, reasonable to extend it. And, of course, that's because interest rates are so low. But As interest rates begin to rise, that begins to change. We can look back historically and say what level of debt service ratio has caused the form of distress that you just mentioned. And to be clear, that distress would appear in the private sector before it would appear in the in the public sector. Uh, but anyway, it's, it clearly is an issue for the public sector as well. And then on that basis, you can begin to do some calculations on what level of interest rates we need to see. Uh, and the reason I chose the five years—that's roughly the sort of average tenor of a, uh, of a loan to a corporation from the banking system. And also, obviously, the banks, it's not just credit from the banks, it's credit from the, the markets as well. And if we look out there, we see for the US probably about 220 basis points. But I think the fascinating thing is you get actually much, much lower numbers for other countries, such as the European Union, where the excessive gearing of France, which is just off the charts, is really going to be a huge constraint on interest rates rising in Europe and also in China. And that might surprise people to know. But also, it doesn't look to me that Chinese interest rates could rise much more than another 100 basis points. So one of the bigger questions on asset allocation and strategy will be who has to cap rates first. That actually is probably going to be the most important thing going forward. Who gets to that level first? And that's an incredibly difficult thing to answer. Because it's very difficult to work out. I mean, working out the rate of inflation may be difficult enough, but the pace at which that inflation reappears is unlikely to be a uniform rate globally. And therefore the move to cap rates is unlikely to occur simultaneously.
1: Russell, let's go back to the topic of inflation that you mentioned before. Uh, it's something I, I certainly agree with, and it's something that I've heard from several of our guests recently on Macro Voices. But I've noticed that a lot of people talking inflation have a different concept of the bigger picture of what's driving the inflation and how it's likely to occur, when it's likely to occur, and so forth. So let's not presume anything and take a a big-picture view of why inflation, why do you think inflation is coming, what's going to drive it, how is it likely to appear, does it show up in consumer prices first, does it show up in commodities first, what do we need to understand about the coming inflation and how it's going to look?
3: Okay, I would attribute it to three things, which is the quantity of money, But secondly, where that money currently rests. And thirdly, who's actually the business of creating that money? So we've dealt already with these major rises in the quantity of money. We know it's not circulating very much. Crucially, it is not in the hands of savings institutions, which is what happened to the form of money that was created during quantitative easing, but rests more generally in the uh, in households and the corporate sector, but particularly in the small corporate sector. And the small corporate sector is much more likely to spend this money than the large corporate sector, which is probably going to use it for financial engineering. Uh, but the third one is really probably ultimately the longer term, more important one, which is who creates this money. Eric, I've been trying to convince people that monetary policy is not run by the central banks with very little success. Uh, what is happening is that when a government mandates a commercial banking system to make loans, and it man- makes that mandate because it guarantees the principle, then it is in the business of creating money. Most of the money in the world is created by commercial banks, not by central bankers. The governments are effectively in control of that, and will continue to be. And That's the forecast, obviously. Everything that we've talked about before, the surge in the supply of money, where that money rests, that's history. That's already happened that the government will continue with this as a forecast. But I think they're highly likely to do so because, A, they quite like the idea that they can create money, the central banks having failed to do it for so long. B, they need a little bit of inflation. And C, it's highly political. I mean, with when you control the banking system, you can steer credit to exactly where you want it to be. Now, what we notice in the terms of the transmission mechanism, which you flagged up in the, in the question, it starts where liquidity gets to front run, if you like, consumer behavior. So that is commodities. I mean, that we've seen this many times before, that people with money, with savings can begin to front-run consumption, and they do that primarily by going into the commodity markets. But it has to come from, ultimately, from the explosion of this liquidity in the system into a form of consumption. Now, I know that just about every sort of major body in the world is doing a forecast is forecasting things will be not so Uh, not so good this year, but things could be explosive this year, given the amount of money in the system. I mean, it's a remarkable recession. At one stage in September uh, of last year, the growth in disposable personal income year and year was 7% in nominal terms. We don't really even get that in economic expansions, never mind in economic recessions. And the willingness of the fiscal authorities to put their balance sheet on the line, to push wealth to the household sector and the small commercial sector, Is unparalleled. There's just been nothing like it. So, to me, in terms of the actual inflation, yes, it will begin with commodities and it has already begun in the commodity sphere, but it spreads rapidly into the economy as that massive liquidity creation begins to get used. And now, unfortunately, now is down really down to the vaccine. And the only thing that really throws it off schedule is if we had some mutant that was immune to the vaccine. But otherwise, it's really highly inevitable that that gets spent. There are some people who think it'll be saved and not spent, but not based on where that money is. Based on who owns that newly created liquidity, I think it's highly likely that it will be spent ultimately and not saved. Does your policy outlook or forecast
1: include financial repression? And if so, how does that interact with the inflation outlook?
3: Yeah, well, the financial repression is really, and we have a 90-minute discussion on that, it's such a profound structural change. But it begins with those yield caps. Yield caps are financial repression. I mean, it's to eradicate one of the most important pricing mechanisms in the world, which is the price of long-term interest rates. Now, we all know that for a generation, those rates have been tampered with initially by purchases from the PBOC and other foreign central bankers more, more laterally by quantitative easing. So it's not as if that rate has always been a true market rate anyway, uh, but it becomes massively more distorted than a cap because we're looking at it permanently staying below uh, the rate of inflation. And What financial repression is, is yes, it's that, that inflation is above interest rates, but it's much, much more profound than that. Because if anybody sits down for a minute, and everybody should do this, everybody should try to war game, being the authorities, the government or the central bank, trying to keep that yield curve down. How do you do that? in this scenario. And what history shows us, because it's been done before, it involves a huge amount of manipulation of the economy and effectively slides the economy along the continuum from market economy towards command economy. Now, to be clear, it doesn't take you all the way to command economy. It just moves you towards command economy. Uh, Most people listening to this call have been operating in what has been, generally speaking, a market economy. And then you have to learn a whole new skill set as to how to invest money in something that's becoming much more akin to a command economy. Maybe we could call it capitalism with Chinese characteristics. But the history of financial repression has included all sorts of things that we've just forgotten about, which is the quantitative control of credit by government. Uh, capital controls have been part of it, rent controls have been part of it, uh, high transaction taxes have been part of it. I mean, I could go on and on, but we've got to get into our heads that this is a fundamental structural transformation and how the financial and savings system works, taking it away from the market and more towards a, an area of government diktat, down towards that command economy uh, end of the scale.
1: Russell, there's at least one school of monetary policy thought that says that if you start to get inflation, you have to raise interest rates because otherwise the inflation can run away and it's actually the interest rates that are the cure for the inflation it sounds like what you're saying is we're expecting inflation we know what the cure is which is higher interest rates but it's impossible to dole out that cure because the government can't afford to let that happen does that mean that we're headed toward the risk of runaway inflation
3: so it is correct that people believe that but it is not correct to say that it's true It is true in a market economy, and and absolutely, Eric, everything I've written in my career over 25 years would focus on that and say, that's absolutely true, but that's only true if you live in a market economy. How would you control inflation in a world where you never raise interest rates and you never shrink the size of the central bank balance sheet? You and I would both say, well, actually, that's got to give us not just runaway inflation. That's got to give us hyperinflation, but I can tell you exactly how you would control the rate of inflation without ever doing either of those things, which is to control the rate of bank credit growth. Now, as it happens, I'm deep in the middle of reading a book about post-World War II French banking. And it is very clear that inflation was never controlled by interest rates. Now, you might say, well, that's why it got out of control. Uh, But actually, through the 50s and 60s, when certainly after a big dose of inflation from 45 to 48, inflation was moderate in France, but by controlling the supply of bank credit, they controlled the supply of money. In the modern system that you and I are used to, we've used interest rates to try and control the supply of bank credit and the supply of money. But it is possible to do it another way around. Now, why, why don't we do that? Or why haven't we done that over the last 30 years? Because it was such a dreadful thing to do, because it ended up with us as the government or the central bank in cahoots, pushing bank credit to our favoured little industries and our sometimes our favoured people as well. And we decided in the late 70s and the 80s that that was such a bad way to do things, which stop when well, it's back. So there is a way that you can control inflation without putting up interest rates or without increasing the size of bank balance sheets. I would say it still gets you higher inflation because the government's very keen to get a reasonable level of bank credit growth and money supply growth, much higher than we've seen in the age of quantitative easing. But it doesn't necessarily take you to hyperinflation unless the government, for some reason, just started telling the banks to lend to everybody all of the time, which I think is is highly unlikely. So we've got to step back in history to realize there is another way of running monetary policy, one that was long ago rejected when Paul Volcker came to the central bank, Uh, but it's back.
1: Russell, let me make sure that I understand this. So the concept of financial repression is essentially keeping interest rates super low, allowing inflation to occur, which means that essentially what's happening is the cost of everything goes up, but the value of everyone's savings to pay for those things doesn't go up because the interest rates have not gone up. And the fear that that could lead to a hyperinflation, you're saying we don't need to worry about, but it sounds like what we can expect Is a slow grind of steady high inflation without an accordant uh, increase in interest rates. So, that what does in fact happen is in purchasing power terms, in real terms, the value of the massive overhang of government debt gets inflated away, but people's savings don't get inflated in order to, to match the growing prices. And that's financial repression. Usually, as I understand it, the first few years of that actually feel really good because the inflation feels good in the beginning it's not until the inflation gets to the point where you've lost purchasing power and your savings didn't keep up that the problem starts to happen am i right in that understanding and if so how far along are we in the story and how many years do we have until the scary part starts
3: yeah that is right i mean i try i've been asked to give a very simple explanation of what financial repression is i describe it as stealing money from old people slowly. Uh, and the slowly bit is important, Eric, for the reasons that you mentioned. We mustn't frighten people and stampede them for the exits. You and I are discussing this very openly. It's a free country. We can discuss this. You might say, well, why on earth is anybody ever going to buy government bonds, let's say yielding two, if inflation was five? And the answer is they'll be forced to. I'm sure people listening to this said, well, you're never going to force me to do that. Well, maybe not. But a lot of your money will be inside a savings institution that is regulated. And it is the easiest thing in the world to pass a piece of legislation which forces your regulated savings institution to put a portion of your money into government debt. And that is how we pull off the financial repression, even though all of us as individuals don't want to buy any of this stuff. Our regulated savings institutions are forced to. When does it get out of control? Well, what a great question. Actually, the answer to that is probably more political than anything else. I mean, if we look at that post-World War II period, a period when people were in, in dire needs. There was a limited financial repression even in the United States of America. When did it get out of control? Well, it got out of control uh, in the second half of the 60s. In America, it was trying to run a great society program simultaneously with the Vietnam War. And then, of course, we had oil shocks. So it was really a political change that produced it getting out of control. The, the politician Johnson had great political goals after the assassination of. Kennedy, he pushed the limit. He got the central bank to collude in that limit. There was a war on. So I would say it's to do with politics. If we could conceive of a politician uh, who had the rectitude to keep the growth in bank credit at a reasonable level, that only be just 5%, percent growth in broad money, if we could conceive of that politician, then we could conceive of a world where this doesn't get out of control. We get inflation of three or four, bond yields at two. However, it is very difficult for me to conceive of that politician because the demands on all of our politicians now are so high, uh, not just in terms of the green initiative, but inequality of wealth, infrastructure. So uh, when will it get out of control? Well, I think we could give it four or five years. But I think in four or five years, it probably will get out of control. But what we really need to watch are our politicians. Now, we've got to stop watching the central bankers. I mean, they really are. Uh, an academic sideshow at this stage. At some stage, a politician will push this too far. And on your issue of hyperinflation, could we ever get the hyperinflation? I don't think so. But of course, politicians make mistakes. You know, there's lots of history of mistakes here in which the velocity begins to go up. So maybe they've created a system that generates growth in broad money at 10%. That's not something you should be concerned about in terms of hyperinflation. But if suddenly you, I, and everybody else begins to fear that inflation is going even higher, we might begin to see the velocity rise pretty rapidly. And those are the times when inflation could get out of control. So in a financial repression, it would be perfectly normal to expect periods where inflation gets out of control, periods when politicians do something about it, but not necessarily taking us to a period of hyperinflation. I think probably one of the best examples of that would be Richard Nixon, who was a man not known for being on the left of politics, but a man in extremis in 1974 who brought in price controls, who brought in capital controls, and who brought in credit controls. It doesn't matter whether your politician is left of center or right of center, but if they compromise too much and there's too much inflation, they don't necessarily try to fix that problem with interest rates. They try to fix it with administrative Measure so there's a ripe history for all of us to plug into here to see how things can get out of control, aided by the oil shock on that on that occasion, but also the fairly peculiar policies that governments can then come up with, other than interest rates, to try and control that inflation.
1: Let's talk through a secular return because what we're talking about here is a return to secular inflation something that has not occurred since the late 1960s a switch from secular disinflation to secular inflation we agree that it's not likely to escalate to outright hyperinflation where you got wheelbarrows full of cash being you know used to to burn to to make heat but we do agree that we're headed toward a secular period of inflation Let's talk through something that nobody's ever really thought about for the last fifty years, which is what a secular shift back to inflation looks like, how it plays out in the markets. Because although people tend to associate inflation is bad for the stock market, really it's very good for the stock market in the beginning, isn't
3: it? Yes, it is. I mean all early stage reflations have been positive for the stock market. And to be more precise If inflation is low and rises towards 4%, then basically you should be holding equities all the way until inflation gets to 4%. And that is why early, uh, early reflations have always been positive. The reason being that the monetary authorities have usually been behind the curve in terms of attacking inflation at one and a half, two and a half, even three and a half. But some, for some reason, at four, they seem to get a little bit more aggressive. And the worst combination for the stock market is a rising discount rate, i.e. interest rates, to bring down a growth rate. And if you're doing a discounted cash flow analysis, if you put the discount rate up and bring the growth rate down, suddenly your net present value is down. So that historically hasn't really happened until inflation gets to 4, and we're still a significant way from 4, and I'm pretty bullish on, on equities. What complicates things this time is that we're also living through the structural change that we've mentioned. Uh, And one of the questions everybody has to ask themselves is, if inflation does get to four, would long-term interest rates be allowed to adjust to reflect four? Because they should be above four, Uh, and let's take that five-year again. What would the yield on the government five-year be if inflation was four? Well, I would suggest probably at least five, potentially more than five, because it's not just the level of inflation that counts, but the direction. Now, I think most people looking at not just the US economy but the global economy would strongly question whether any of these economies, private sector or public sector, would really be that solvent if nominal interest rates were close to that level. So, uh, I'm afraid this time it is different. Sometimes that is actually true, famously in the 1950s when, they, when the yield on equities went below the yield on bonds for the first time instead. There are very occasionally there's a structural shift which means that that's true. We're living through one of those structural shifts, and I would not And I'm not happy owning my equities all the way to 4% inflation. I only want to own them to the yield cap. And I suspect the yield cap is going to come before we get to 4% inflation. And I need to be very clear why that yield cap is negative for equities. It's because it's enforced through the regulator and not through the central bank. But the central bank simply cannot stand behind that bond market and cap that yield curve with a further expansion in its balance sheet. That's far too dangerous in a world of rising liquidity or rising inflation to basically commit to an infinite creation of liquidity to cap the yield. So they have to turn to the savings institutions that I mentioned earlier, and they have to force them to buy that yield curve, because in doing so, they don't create any liquidity in doing so. They're simply moving money, but they're going to have to sell equities to buy bonds. So I think that yield curve cap, which most people, I would say 9 out of 10 people I speak to think will be incredibly positive for equities, uh, will actually turn out to be rather negative for equities. And to your introductory point, the 70s was a period of very high inflation, but it certainly wasn't a very good period to be owning equities.
1: So for the equity market, the stock market, the rule of thumb is stay long until you get to about 4% of observed inflation. Let's talk about other markets, commodities particularly. Inflation, certainly in the beginning, needs to be good for commodities. Maybe the way to look at this is as a financial historian, which markets should we be focused on? Is it rates? Is it commodities? Is it equities? If we think the big story here is secular shift toward inflation, how do you play that? If, If you're global macro, you can trade anything.
3: Well, the big story is gold. And I realise it stands in the shadow of the mighty Bitcoin at the minute, but it's not a shadow it can stand in. <laughs> it can't stand in that shadow for very long. Uh, so that is where you put your money because gold benefits from two things: one, over the long term, it has held its value relative to inflation. But secondly, in a in a world of government manipulation, then also uh, it does very well. It's not as if gold cannot be manipulated by the government, but it, you know it's way down the list of things they need to manipulate because it's so small relative to relative to everything else. So around the world, what we are you know, I mentioned in the what I mentioned already is that Pokemon cards are doing very well as well. Why would Pokemon cards been going up and baseball cards going up? Because people are bidding up what I would call anonymity value. An anonymity value is well, I think the government's coming for my money, I'd better hide it. That's what anonymity value is. That's what's behind, you know, it's a crucial issue behind Bitcoin and many of these other things. My like gold has a little bit of anonymity and tend to buy it in very small quantities. Uh, the way Indians do for their weddings, or perhaps the way you do if you carry around coins. It's got a lot of anonymity value in it, but most of the gold in the world doesn't really have a lot of anonymity value in it. So you can't lose that anonymity value. It can't collapse in terms of anonymity value, whereas some of the other things I've mentioned possibly could. Now, I don't think the government's coming for your Pokemon cards, but maybe one day it will come after your Bitcoin. So gold is, is this asset that sits there and is beyond government interference because it's so small. And not particularly important. And then behind that, we add in the other uh, commodities. And we mustn't forget food. I, I sort of hesitate to answer food because it's a shocking situation where and it's, we've seen it before. Savings capital rushes in and bids up the price of food, given the, you know, that that is a necessity for most of the global population. I once spoke at a, a conference for charities in London, and it was populated by lots of charities, and they were listening to the fund management company explaining how they'd all been making money. Out of speculating in the grain market. Most of the charities in that room were in the business of buying grain to try and feed people and keep them, keep them happy and keep them well and keep them, keep them healthy. But we mustn't forget that inflation through history has been primarily inflation of commodities, but particularly of food prices. And if we look, you know, if you look even over the last 30 years, we've amazingly had positive inflation over the last 30 years. There's been a significant erosion in the purchasing power of your dollar over 30 years, despite the, despite Amazon, despite China. And despite all of these things, we've still managed to generate that inflation. Uh, And if we're talking about a world of higher inflation, we really have to be talking about a world of higher commodity prices. So commodity prices, commodities themselves are a hedge. Commodity stocks are more complicated. I don't know if we want to go into all of the extra complications you add into investment when you do it through an equity rather than do it through the commodity. But they are slightly more complicated. But I think on the whole, probably a better place to put your money than pure equity. I want to come back
1: to the question of gold versus Bitcoin. I happen to agree with you very strongly, but you know this has become such a contentious issue and an issue that so many people are very focused on. And you know, if you stop and think about it, why is it that gold has historically been such an effective store of value and an inflation hedge? Well, because it is what everybody agrees by convention is the scarcity asset of choice. It's it's what we trade into when we're concerned about the real purchasing value of money decreasing and I think that there, there's a younger generation that's saying hey you, you two old guys uh, you're missing the boat here you know the printing press and, and the the newspaper used to be the primary means of public communication it's been replaced with social media. And by the way, guys, gold was replaced as the scarcity asset of choice by Bitcoin. Now, I personally don't hold that view at all, but I know that some of our listeners do. So what would you say to that argument?
3: Well, I would say uh, to the argument is this: there's lots of things that are in scarce supply. I mean, I've for a long time been recommending for 30 odd years saying buy fine wine because the fantastic bill story for fine wine. It wasn't that it was in fixed supply. There was got lots of wealthy Chinese guys coming along who were going to drink the fixed supply. So actually, the supply was going to shrink. So why wouldn't we buy that asset where well, you could guarantee an annual shrinkage in a 1995 Bordeaux over any other asset? I mean, if supply is the only condition we're interested in, then there's lots of assets that have you know, better better attributes than gold and better attributes than Bitcoin. But there's something else going on with Bitcoin. And you know I read it every day in the press. And everybody who's really into Bitcoin should think about this, think about the reasons they buy it. To me, most people buy it because they think it has anonymity. Within the community, I see massive discussion as to what extent you have anonymity or not. But I saw a very prominent gentleman yesterday telling everybody that if they own Bitcoin they'd never have to pay any tax ever again. Now, if you're somebody who likes Bitcoin and believes that that is the future for Bitcoin, then I think you're wrong. I think that's simply you're wrong. We don't have a stable, civilized society if there is that asset class that people, a black hole into which money can pour to avoid taxation or regulation. Uh, Now, I don't think everybody who buys Bitcoin wants to do that, but I think many people who buy Bitcoin believe that that is a key asset of that asset. And it is inconceivable to me that governments would ever permit that to continue. Now, the question is, if they did something to stop that, what is the value of Bitcoin? Yes, it still has a fixed supply, but what is its use? Because it seems to me the main end buyer at the minute, the use they think they have, is avoidance of taxation and regulation. So I don't know how far Bitcoin falls if it isn't the vehicle for the avoidance of taxation and regulation, but I think it falls a very long way. And I don't think gold falls at all, because we, over many years, the government's got a pretty good handle on gold. So the reason that Bitcoin people buy Bitcoin is that they think they can escape the government, and I think they're wrong.
1: Well, that used to be the reason that everyone bought gold, is they believed that they could escape government and taxation.
3: The reason that people buy Bitcoin is they think it's better than gold at escaping taxation. <laughs> and it's better than gold at escaping uh, the government. And it's no better or no worse. It's the same. So what I'm trying to get at is whatever the price of gold is, there's an anonymity value in there of X. And whatever, whatever Bitcoin is, it's an anonymity value X plus 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000. So both of them have the same anonymity value. Ultimately, government is government, and it gets what it wants. Caesar gets rendered onto what Caesar needs to get rendered onto him. One of them reflects that in its price, gold, and the other one doesn't. That reflects the belief that somehow, in this one particular asset class in the history of the world, Caesar does not get what is rendered onto Caesar.
1: Now, the next thing that you said after gold, it was agriculture, food specifically. It seems to me there's a really good argument for food and agriculture because, you know, we've got increasing global population and decreasing supply of farmland. And it just seems naturally logical that, you know, boy, the cost of agricultural commodities has to go up. But then I think, well, wait a minute, what's the really big picture that's driving everything we're talking about. It's governments with trillions of dollars of stimulus. Well, what do they want to spend it on? They want to spend it on a lot of infrastructure, and they really want to get an electric vehicle revolution going. Seems to me like copper really stands out, as something that's going to be needed to build out that infrastructure and is going to be needed for the electric vehicles. And I also think about the battery metals for those electric vehicles. I, I'm curious, how how would you rank those next to gold and food in terms of how to play this coming inflation?
3: Yeah, so I'm not an expert on those uh, hard commodities at all. I have noted in the past how copper has been a pretty good proxy for global growth. And uh, we're going to be seeing more investment. There's an investment boom coming. I know people look at copper in relation to China. But there's several different types of investment boom coming. One, there's an investment boom coming even in, <laughs> even in China itself, which is hard to believe, given their investment rates. Uh, and this is all to do with the severing of links between China and the rest of the world. We then also, outside of China, whatever that block comes to be called, we also have to do an investment boom to make sure that we replace all the production that is no longer coming clearly from China. What the COVID crisis has taught is that we need shorter change of distribution, and that triggers another investment boom. You've told me about the green investment boom and its impact on on copper. That is what's going to happen. I mean, we're looking at a bifurcated world with a, a with a need to go for a more green agenda. There are clearly issues with emissions in terms of extracting this stuff from the ground, but they're also essential to get this economy to where it needs to be. So, I, without knowing anything about any of these uh, hard commodities specifically. Uh, they are related to investment and all of those things would suggest to all of us, I think, that we're going for an investment boom, which is really not the conventional thought process at all, which somehow believes that we live in a world where the internet and ethereal businesses destroy the need for any tangible physical thing that you can pick up. And I think we've probably got to peak On that that belief. And we realize that we we, we ran for a long time outside of China, we ran for a long time on low physical investment, high investment in internet. And I think what we'll find for the reasons I've mentioned is that we're looking at high physical investment everywhere. uh, And that is positive for commodities in general.
1: Let's touch on energy. Uh, There's definitely a part of this argument you hear from some people is look, the the green revolution is clearly uh, been pending for a long time. And the political party change that we've just had in the United States is likely to accelerate the the Green Revolution. That's got to be a a headwind in the eyes of some people, I don't agree myself, for oil prices. It it means that the the boom in oil prices has to end because, you know, we're going to reach peak consumption of oil. We're not going to need it anymore because all the vehicles are going to be electric. I I don't buy the story, but I want to know your take on it.
3: I don't have any particular insight on that, except to say that a green revolution takes time. Uh, In between now and then, there'll be lots of trading opportunities in oil. Uh, As to where the price of oil is in 15, 20 years from now, I would suspect it would be lower. But there are plenty of opportunities in between now and then, if you're a trader to buy oil. This green revolution is going to take a hell of a long time. And in the meantime, we need oil.
1: Yeah, I would just add my own perspective is this green revolution is very real. It's going to change the world. And what it's causing right now is a lack of investment in oil production. And what I think is going to happen is we're going to have the the higher price effect of not having invested in oil production, because we're going to need that energy before the Green Revolution, as you say, takes time. Uh, It won't have happened yet when we get to insufficient supply because of insufficient investment. And it is the Green Revolution that's causing the lack of investment right now. Let's move on, Russell, because before we close, I want to come back to what you said earlier about financial repression being a system strategy for government to steal money from old people slowly. Is there any way or any strategy for uh, normal people to evade financial oppression anywhere
3: in the world? Yeah, there are other countries that we can look at. Uh, after World War II, it turned out to be Switzerland. And bond investors in Switzerland, this is an era of rising inflation, but not in Switzerland. And bonds, Swiss bonds, produced good returns. But particularly the Swiss exchange rate, the Swiss currency, uh, produced very good returns, certainly for people outside of the United States who were subjected to regular devaluations. Why Switzerland? What was it about Switzerland? I mean, we take it for granted that it was always going to be Switzerland. But the thing that set Switzerland apart in the world in 1945 is its lack of debt. Government and private, for the very obvious reason, it had not been involved in fighting a world war, and therefore it came out of that without any debt. So when we're looking at financial repression, we're just simply saying, hey, you know what? All of these guys have to inflate away their debt. And that's why you come to conclude that you'll have financial repression. So if we could find countries that didn't have all that debt, then those are the countries to look at. Now, with the exception of China, those are emerging markets. Now, this is a timeframe thing. I'm a little bit nervous on emerging markets, given that this bamboo curtain or silicon curtain is falling down between China and the rest of the world. Uh, but over the long term, the debt of these countries is actually very low, and I particularly flag up India, as a country which may be able to avoid financial repression. It also helps that India's only recently come out of a financial repression, which they call the license raj. In other words, they know the cost of it. I think across the rest of the world, we've forgotten the horrible cost, long-term cost of financial repression that India hasn't. So as a long-term investor, I'd certainly be looking uh, to emerging markets, and obviously, particularly those that find themselves very clearly uh, in the US camp in this coming Cold War. And uh, there's no doubt that which camp India is in when it comes to that Cold War. It's very clearly put itself in the side of the USA.
1: Russell, I have to tell you, you're one of my personal favorite guests that we've ever had on Macro Voices. And I think all of our listeners have really enjoyed your, your just terrific insights on the macro economy. We used to get hate mails after every single one of your interviews because I had to announce to people, look, Russell does uh, have a service. It's only for institutional investors and for compliance reasons. Retail guys, sorry, you're out of luck. I think maybe that's changing. Tell us about russelnapier.co.uk.
3: That's correct. We used to have to do that because it was on a website which had lots of other research on it, which wasn't available for retail. But I've now been able to find a way to get around that. And there will be an individual subscription uh, available from next Monday on russellnapier.co.uk for, uh, for the newsletters. So I, you know, I hope people are interested. I hope it's useful. Uh, it is there as of next Monday. Uh, fingers crossed
1: okay and again let's just be clear we're talking about starting february 1st 2021 because otherwise we're going to get the angry hate mails all weekend saying
3: where is it he said it was there <laughs> okay yeah february february 1st that's probably the safest date
1: russell i can't thank you enough for a terrific interview patrick Serezna and i will be back right after this message from our sponsor Looking for exposure to rising silver and gold prices? Abraplata Resource Corporation, ticker ABRA on the TSX Venture Exchange, and ABBRF in the United States, is rapidly emerging as one of the premier silver and gold-focused exploration companies. AbraPlata has an advanced stage project with a large resource base of over 140 million ounces on a silver equivalent basis and is focused on unlocking additional high-grade drill results. Abraplata is very well funded with a strong shareholder base and excellent exploration upside potential. Visit Abraplata.com for more information. That's A-B-R-A-P-L-A-T-A. Dot com for more information on this silver and gold exploration stock.
0: Now, back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna.
2: Eric, it was great to have Russell back on the show. He's definitely one of my favorite guests to have on. And uh, his uh, view, uh, the way he's pivoted to the inflation outlook really is something that resonates with me. I uh, I continue to also believe that uh, there is a change in the commodity markets and, uh, and there will be inflation that will emerge. And so it was really interesting to hear his take on how it all plays out. What did you take away from the interview?
1: I agree with you, Patrick. Russell is definitely one of my absolute top all-time favorite guests. He's absolutely brilliant. The, The thing that really resonates for me, and it's both his comments and other things I've been thinking about, is just this secular return to inflation. The last time we had a shift from disinflation to secular inflation was in the late 1960s, before most of us can remember. And I think a lot of people have inflation equals bad for the stock market. Kind of tattooed on the back of their brain because that's what we all remember from the end of the last big inflation during the 1970s and particularly in the later 1970s going into the uh, 1982 83 recession. There was just a a horrific negative impact on the stock market because of inflation. What we need to remember is inflation is always good for the stock market for the first few years. It's not till you get to the point where inflation becomes a problem. And of course, okay, when is that point? What's the macro theory behind it? The way Russell just laid out, watch for 4% inflation, that's the point where it starts to become problematic. You know, this guy knows his history. I I haven't fact-checked that, but I have to believe if Russell is saying it, that's a number that I'm not going to forget. In any event, Patrick, let's move on to our post-game chart book. Listeners, you'll find the download link in your Research Roundup email. If you don't have a Research Roundup email, that means you're not yet registered at MacroVoices.com. Just go to our homepage, MacroVoices.com. Click the red button that says Looking for the Downloads. Patrick, the chart book is titled Squeeze Insanity this week. Uh, What is going on? Redditors are taking over or cornering the silver market. Um, It seems like Tesla has been replaced by GameStop is the silliest price action of any stock in the marketplace. And the S&P
2: looked like it was starting to crash and then bounced right back the next day. What the heck is going on here? Well, it's interesting. Let's just start with the S&P 500 on page two. And uh, we, we obviously uh, spent several days flatlining into the FOMC and into Tesla earnings. And I think that everything kind of culminated together to create some selling pressure that kind of fed on itself. There was the gamma flip level was very tight. So it would just create a small liquidity event. What is really interesting and what was really uh, something that I highlighted yesterday to my members was that as we approached that 50 50 day moving average, it was going to be a a critical moment to see whether or not this was just a short term washout of too many people that were overextended and that it was going to just be a buy on dip or whether it was going to be the beginning of a more ominous market correction. And what's interesting is if we go back and look at the 50 day moving average, just uh, the way it's behaved throughout the year, you can see that it was when that 50 day moving average was broken back in March, uh, February of 2020, that It really opened the floodgate and that uh, was the sign that the new cell cycle that became that coronavirus crash was underway. And so uh, most of the time when uh, the 50-day moving average is tested, it is often bought on dip. And so, so far, you have to give it to the bulls that they haven't uh, dropped the ball yet. The buying came back pretty quickly. And I think that uh, what will really be the tell in the next day or two going into next week is whether the bulls can make higher highs or whether... Whether there's still another round of selling to to test that 50-day again. But what was particularly interesting to me was that drop was accompanied by a substantial spike in volatility. So going page three, where I have the VIX, we had an extraordinary move in the VIX up into the to the high 30s almost toward 40 on the upside virtually almost a doubling of volatility in one day on just a hundred p point drop I just thought that this was uh, was amazing that we saw it. and and I think that this actually contributed to the selling because when volatility rises a lot of those volatility targeting funds have to deleverage into such kind of rises in volatility and so I think that there was a lot of kind of shock yesterday that caused a lot of people to start taking positions off but uh, at this moment I think the jury is still out whether this is going to turn into something much bigger.
1: Patrick let's move on to GameStop a stock that I never even heard of until this week and (laughs) what the heck is going on here?
2: This is just absolutely crazy. Like, I mean, it, it was obviously had a very large short interest and rightfully so. I mean, it's a company that was is losing, that has negative earnings. Its revenues over the last couple of years were dropped 40%. It was a company that uh, simply did not have and still doesn't have a viable business model or at least has uh, not been able to adapt to the changing post-coronavirus period. But yet it didn't stop the fact that this uh, Wall Street bets and these Reddit guys decided that this was one of the stocks they wanted to target in and one of these um, bull runs. And it's just absolutely amazing to see how this price action emerged. So this is a 15 minute chart just showing the last couple of weeks of price action. But I mean, this stock essentially went from being like a $40, $50 stock a week or two ago to going over $500 on the upside in just a straight line move. And what's amazing is just the sheer volatility throughout the day. I mean, from $250 to $480, to, down to $125, and then right back to 273 Just the sheer volatility minute by minute is crazy. And so what is, is it just uh, some gunslinging kids in Robinhood accounts or what causes this kind of volatility? And that's where I wanted to talk about page five, because what we find is that uh, a lot of these young Robinhooders, have uh, caught on to the idea that if they buy up short-dated deep out of the money call options on a lot of these stocks like they were doing originally on Tesla and company that they pack a lot of this uh, gamma convexity and the dealers because they're uh, hedging out this gamma actually they can drive the the momentum with a very small amount of money and you can really see it here like the dealers at this stage have now had to spike volati- uh, implied up to 600% or higher on in many cases on the, the weeklies on GameStop. This is just extraordinary implied volatilities that are making these options basically so expensive that there's almost no asymmetry in trying to, to buy them now that's essentially stalling this out. But what's interesting is when you look at the open interest strikes uh, you can really see that what I have there is in the, the light blue is where all the open interest is for just one day till expiration. You can see that they really packed it all into to these very short dated options where the vast majority of the open interest on this lies. And uh, I wanted to take that opportunity to explain why this phenomenon happens. So let's uh, let's just kind of uh, go through a simulation and let's just say a week or two ago when or a week ago when GameStop was trading let's say at $100. This is hypothetical. But let's say it was at $100 and back then the implied volatility let's say it was 150%. And so with $100, stock and 150 implied vol, let's say the target by these Robinhooders is to go 20% out of the money and they're targeting, let's say, $120 strike on GameStop. And so let's say that at 150 vol, that option's priced at, let's say, $3. And so let's say the aggregate, they turn around and they go long one week out, option $120 strike. And let's say they do a combination of 1,000 contracts. So in doing so, they've allocated two hundred and eighty thousand dollars, or let's say three hundred thousand dollars of call options that they spent altogether. And now the dealer is the one that's going to be short the gamma because they're they're facilitating this and they're all coming in buying these cheap, you know, two three dollar options that are twenty percent out of the money. And the dealer sells it to them, and now they're short the gamma. That means the convexity is working against. the dealer and is in favor of these call buyers. Now, in a normal orderly market, the odds of these calls expiring worthless is usually very high. Usually, this is a great trade for for uh, the dealers and and the option inevitably zeroes. But in this situation, that starting delta. On this position, would let's say have the dealer synthetically short twenty four thousand shares of GameStop, or let's say uh, twenty five thousand shares of GameStop, something like that, around twenty five cent delta. And that means that they're delta dollars short at this moment, close to uh, you know two point three, two point four million dollars. And so, so what they have to do is they have to go in there to be delta hedged. They have to go and buy twenty four thousand shares of GameStop. So by these Robin Hooders, going in there and putting $280,000 to work. The dealer is buying $2.4 million of stock on their behalf, essentially, to be hedged, Delta hedged out. But the, the convexity in the gamma actually means that, let's say, a very rapid rise in the stock goes from 100 to $150. The dealer, well, obviously, the dealer is hedging this real time and have all the algos and everything doing it, but they find themselves now being... Synthetically short through these options, let's say 87,000 shares or $13 million. So they have to turn around and go long another, let's say uh, 50,000 shares of GameStop to stay delta neutral. So while these Robinhooders only put 280,000 to work, these dealers are systematically having to buy the stock up to stay delta neutral. And so they've figured out this game of, of having the market makers do all the Dirty work of of running the stock on the upside, and this has been this feedback loop that they've uh, they seem to have figured out, and they obviously ran Tesla and all these other stocks, and now they're looking at where they can squeeze all these different shorts in these and trap them in these types of trades, and it's a, it's one of the most amazing things that we're seeing. It's going to be history. Like I think when we're gonna lo- we're gonna be looking back five years from now at this period because this is not going to be able to, to sustain. Something's going to break as they continue. To do this, let's move on to page six and look at Nokia, another stock
1: where the same kind of shenanigans have been perpetrated.
2: This is the interesting part because they obviously targeted Nokia, but Nokia is an ADR that trades over here in in the U.S. It also primarily trades in Europe. It's a European company. And what's amazing is that when they ran the stock to the upside, they shot it to almost $10 a share on the upside, but it never traded anywhere near there in Europe. And it's amazing kind of like, uh, I don't, I guess they didn't do their homework, but I wonder how many uh, traders were able to arbitrage that one out as there was clearly a massive disconnect between the two. AMC
1: Entertainment on page seven is yet another stock. Look at the size of that gap.
2: Oh, that's extraordinary. Like AMC, obviously, movie theaters, I mean, they have, oh, they've been running into credit issues and obviously COVID didn't play very well on these these kind of companies, but yet it didn't stop them from targeting the stock, taking AMC from just a few dollars up to $20 in one crazy gap. But what's amazing is that after that move to 20, how fast it dropped to $7. And that the key, I think, what I want to talk about is, is that even though the, uh, the dealers contribute to the upside, volatility through this being short gamma scenario it's a double-edged sword because it exacerbates volatility on both directions so when a stock starts to sell then dealers are turning around and then also selling into the weakness and so while they'll accelerate the price to the upside they're also accelerating it to the downside this creates this extraordinary volatility whipping you know from five dollars to 20 and from 20 back to seven in just a few days it's it's just insane what we're witnessing with that volatility. Patrick, when I see this
1: kind of price action, it really makes me skeptical of the narrative that we're hearing that supposedly what's going on here is a bunch of Gen Z and, and millennial kids on their, you know, cell phones with, with Robin Hood are, you know, getting together and uh, their generation likes to be on the internet. So they're they're on Reddit and Wall Street bets and talking up their, their strategies and so forth. Um, This looks to me like good old-fashioned market manipulation. And I just wonder, aside from the stories about how this is the new millennial and Gen Z generational shift, it feels to me like there's some 55-year-old long-time veteran of markets, 30-year veteran of the markets, just doing good old-fashioned market manipulation and playing these Reddit guys uh, against each other in order to create this kind of volatility. Is there any way we can tell what's really driving this and whether or not the narrative is, is true?
2: No, I mean, in the end, uh, it's the Reddit posts that are the public forum. So uh, I don't know whether there'll be investigations into what's really behind all of this. I mean, there was recent comments about Pelosi saying that they're reviewing the GameStop issue. AOC came out, you know, commenting on all of this. So, I mean, this has now got big enough that, uh, that you've got uh, politicians calling this outright manipulation themselves. So you have to think that uh, at some point here, the party's going to stop with some sort of uh, uh, something that's going to scare them away. I'm not sure what, what it is or how it plays out, but this is not going to be the, the new normal moving forward. This is a, a small window of time, and it's amazing to watch this, how this is playing out. Let's move on to page eight, where it's
1: silver. Now we're talking about, it sounds like the Hunt Brothers all over again. I guess the idea here is that this group of people on Reddit have decided to essentially try to squeeze the silver market. And it says uh, in, in this one post that you have here from Reddit, that they're going to squeeze it from $25 to $1,000 an ounce. <laughs> um Okay, yeah, <laughs> I'll sell mine for a thousand right now. In fact, I'll give you a discount nine ninety five uh, for for as much as you want.
2: Well, you know what? Uh, the reason I added this is because it just literally came out this morning, and silver popped on the news, and they were also targeting one of these silver companies in uh, AG, which was uh, First Majestic Silver, which jumped from fourteen to nineteen dollars. Really, uh, what's going to be interesting to see is can they take it to the, the, the this arena? And, you know, obviously one day or a few hours doesn't tell whether this breakout is going to stick. But uh, the fact that they targeted, it's going to be really interesting to see whether they actually succeed. And I think that's one of the more interesting things I'm going to be watching here in over the next couple of days into, uh, into next week is can they really pull this off? Can they squeeze silver or is this going? to be where, where the um, party stops and they fail to be able to follow through on this. It's going to be uh, one of the more interesting things to watch.
1: Well, Patrick, they've certainly managed to manipulate a lot of other things fairly successfully, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Listeners, if you enjoy these post-game chart decks, you don't have to settle for just this. You can get Patrick's service every single day of the week, almost every day except Friday. Sign up for a free trial of Big Picture Trading. The information on that is on page 11. We're going to leave it there for this week's episode. This episode is brought to you by ABEX Technologies, pioneering the design of smarter markets that better meet the needs of both market participants and society as a whole. And by Abra Plata Resource Corporation, a premier emerging silver and gold exploration company, ticker ABRA on the TSX Venture Exchange and ABBRF in the United States. Listeners, if you haven't yet taken advantage of a free subscription to our Research Roundup email newsletter, please do so. You can do that by clicking the red button that says Looking for the Downloads on our homepage at MacroVoices.com. Patrick, tell them what they're missing in this week's
2: Research Roundup. Well, this week, you're going to find the transcript for today's interview as well as a link to the chart book we just discussed in the postgame. There's also a link to a recent variant perception blog piece uh, on market sensing rising inflation risks and a link to an article about this Reddit rebellion. And so you'll find this and so much more in this week's research roundup. That does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we get from our listeners. And we're always looking for suggestions on how we can make the program even better. Now, for those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners. Send us an email at research at macrovoices.com or tag it with the MVRR hashtag on Twitter and we will consider it for our weekly distributions. If you have not already, follow our main Twitter account at macrovoices for all the most recent updates and releases. You can also follow Eric on Twitter at Eric S. Townsend, and that's Eric spelt with a K, and myself, at Patrick Resna. On behalf of Eric Townsend and myself, thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next week.
0: That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly Research Roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week, free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com, and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our Mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com.